0: Hey there, history fans, and welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Melissa. Aw, no Lauren today. Yes, unfortunately, Lauren's going to be unavailable to record for the next couple weeks or so, but she will be back. I promise she will be back. And until then, I'll just be sitting here staring at a blank wall. Talking to you, lovely listeners. There's not too much scarier for an extrovert than sitting by themselves. Although speaking of scary, how about we get in today's topic, shall we? (laughs) So today we are bringing you six supposedly haunted cemeteries from around the world. There's actually seven. I added a bonus. Stay tuned for the end. If anyone has actually been to any of these cemeteries, definitely let us know. Hit us up on our social media, love to hear from you. And it doesn't have to even be from these cemeteries. Any cemeteries, graveyards nearby that you've gone to, any paranormal experiences you've had, anything it's spooky season, or really any time the year I'm up for this. Post it, add it. I want to hear. Lauren and I really like this stuff. We're also major tapophiles And we love cemeteries and graveyards. And for anyone who's not familiar with the term tapophile, it just means someone who likes cemeteries and graveyards the histories of them and evolution of tombstone designs over time things like that speaking of tombstones how about we (laughs) dig a grave jump in and (laughs) get started so first on our list we're going to go all the way to italy to palermo and the cemetery of the convent of capuchin friars also known as the capuchin catacombs and apparently The practice of mummification, particularly in Sicily and Palermo, has been a very long time tradition there, which I was not aware of. This particular cemetery was actually built to house the remains of Capuchin friars and began in 1534 at the church of Santa Maria della Pace, which is the church of the Lady of Peace. And originally, they had built a pit in the floor in order to bury the dead in. However, about forty years or so later, by fifteen ninety seven the order of Friars had actually grown so large that they had to create a new way of burying the deceased and It was because of this that they started using the caves behind the altar of Saint Anne and digging out the catacombs and This took about two years. when the living friars of the community began to exhume the corpses of their deceased brothers, they came across something incredible and yet I imagine very horrific, particularly for the time, the buried bodies that they had put into the pit had been found naturally mummified. And it was even said that their faces were still even recognizable. So I can certainly imagine the shock and horror on their faces when you go to dig up your deceased brother's skeleton, expecting a skeleton, and you get a mummy. Wow. Just wow. Wow. But instead of just reinterring their brothers, the Capuchins actually decided that this mummification process was an act of God and decided to actually display these bodies and niches carved into the catacomb walls. And the first body to be set up as a relic was the body of Friar Silvestro de Gubbio. And he can actually still be seen to this day in the brown robe and headdress that he was buried in in the 1500s. And I think he's actually set up near the front entrance of the catacombs. And you can actually see a picture of him. He's holding a sign that states his name, as well as the date commemorating his interment in the catacombs as October 16th, 1599. Just wow. <laughs> so after these 45 mummified bodies were found, news traveled fast throughout the region, throughout the country. People came all over to view these, quote, miraculous corpses, and even asked the friars if they would be allowed to be buried within their walls of their church. Because if this is an act of God, you want to be buried near it, it's sacred, it's holy. And eventually, the demand for lay people wanting to be buried in these sacred walls became so much that in 1783, the friars decided to allow anyone to be buried in the catacombs that requested. So because of this, they began excavating even more expansions into the cave and as well as several different corridors. And these corridors were actually become organized uh, by social status, sex, and profession. And with so many people being buried in these catacombs, both of the convent and not, and so many people coming to view these bodies, the catacombs actually became a sort of museum of death. And you can still go and view it today. So there's a corridor of women where you can see mummified women. They're in very pretty embroidered clothing. There's a section called the crucifix, and that is actually dedicated to the bodies of virginal women. In the corridor of men, you can see the remains of the reigning bodies of some of Palermo's more prominent families. In the corridor of professionals, you can find mummified bodies of painters, lawyers, doctors, military men, et cetera. And it doesn't just in there. So according to the website, palermocatacombs.com, between the 1600s and the 1800s, thousands, thousands of people, especially the very wealthy and very rich celebrities of Palermo, gained an internal tomb at the catacombs here. And I think the thousands probably comes from waves of plague epidemics and around that time. But if you were very, very wealthy and very, very generous with your donations to the friars and the church, they could actually immortalize you by using the friars' mummification process. And that would go as such. So after discovering the original 45 bodies, the friars continued to mummify their dead and their deceased brothers. And they seem to have sort of perfected a method not too long after realizing that this cave that they use is really good at actually mummifying because of the temperature and low humidity. So after a body would be dead, they would take it and lay the body in a a colatoyo, I think is how you pronounce it. It's a preparation room. And their organs would then be removed and the areas filled with straw or bay leaves to aid in the dehydration process. The dead would then be laid down on tubes of terracotta, which allowed the bodily fluids to be drained away as the body desiccates over time. And the prep room would then be closed off for a whole year. And then when reopened, the body would then be washed in vinegar, dressed in the clothes that were chosen by the deceased, and then placed in their respective niches. And apparently, according to the website, in times of epidemics, the body would also be bathed in arsenic, which also had a tendency to mummify people. Also did not know that. So by 1880, the cemetery actually had to close due to overcrowding, and by close, I mean no more burials there, because you can certainly still go visit, and I would absolutely love to. However, there would be two exceptions to this, two burials in the very early 1900s. The first was in 1911 with the body of Giovanni Paterniti, who was the vice counsel of the U.S., and the second was in 1920 with the two-year-old body of little Rosalia Lombardo, and she's actually known as the world's most beautiful mummy. If you've ever watched a top five most haunted list, or you've seen a documentary about the Palermo catacombs, you've probably seen pictures of little Rosalia, or if you've heard tales of there's this catacomb or um, of mummies, and there's this little baby mummy, and sometimes it looks like she's opening her eyes, usually during the day, and they close at night, that would be her. and she doesn't actually open or close her eyes because she is a mummy. She has no eyes to open, but it has been debunked. And that is actually a trick of the natural lighting coming in through the windows, shining onto her crypt. Still kind of cool and creepy, of course. So although these catacombs are no longer accepting applications for burial, they are open to the public. As I said, if you go to catacombs.com there'll be more details for that and There are approximately 2,000 mummified bodies in this one area alone which actually makes these catacombs the largest collection of mummies in the world in one location. So now we're going to move into the Czech Republic here and we're going to go to Prague to the Old Jewish Cemetery. And the Old Jewish Quarter Cemetery was founded in the 15th century, And one of the first burials here to date was 1439, with the last burial in 1787. It is actually not a large cemetery, and it it was only in use for about 300 people, or sorry, 300 years. (laughs) A lot more people than that. But the burials are certainly unique, where graves at the cemetery are anywhere between 10 to possibly 12 feet deep, with bodies stacked on top of each other within these graves. Certainly an unusual process, at least by a modern artist. So one of my sources notes that there is around 12,000 tombstones here in this one small graveyard, many of which are actually decorated with various motifs such as plants, animals, and professional signifiers. And the cemetery is actually said to hold up to 100,000 bodies, again, stacked all on top of each other. And the reason that this cemetery stopped accepting burials in 1787 is that there was a new law put into place at the time that stated that people could no longer be buried in areas where they were living because it's a health issue. And if you know anything about the plague and the different waves of it coming in the 1300s and in the 1600s and in between, you got to take your dead out of the city limits because it certainly affects the living. So among those buried in this cemetery includes uh, Rabbi Judah Ben Bezalel. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, but he is supposedly the rabbi who created the story of the golem. And his tomb is actually topped with an ornate headstone that actually has a decoration of a lion on it. And if anyone likes really, really, really old movies, there is a very, I don't know if it's a whole film or just pieces of it. But there's a very old silent film, Black and White, very early 19-teens, maybe very, very early 1920s. But it's about the, the, the creation of the golem, And it's actually really well done, especially for back then. If you're interested, look it up. It sh- there should be at least clips online somewhere. If you like old films, definitely check that one out. Here you'll also find different motifs on the tombstones, as I mentioned. So. If you find a tombstone with a books on it, those are for cantors. And if you find scissors, those are tailors. If you see a headstone with grapes on it, it usually denoting that someone had led a very prosperous life. And being a cemetery, of course, it's going to have tales of hauntings and ghosts and apparitions and spirits. Although I, I will admit that some of the cemeteries I found, like the one I, that I spoke about previously, not all of them have hauntings associated with them, but the ones that Lauren helped me research, like this one, do. So I apologize, not all of these are going to have ghost stories associated with them, but they are all certainly strange, unique, creepy, and perfect for Halloween. <laughs> so for this cemetery, one of the spirits is known as the Dancing Jewess, and she was supposedly a sex worker. And unfortunately died a very grim death. So she died by apparently being beaten by a whip on Good Friday. And due to her dying on Good Friday, every year on that day, she actually returns to the world of the living to dance men to their deaths. So the story of her death goes as such. On a Good Friday, around 11 p.m., a man in black burst through the doors of the place that she happened to be working at and began flogging everybody in sight. Well, that's not cool. So the dancing Jewess is unfortunately the one that took the most meetings, and then he ordered her to continue to dance all the way through Judgment Day. Another ghost that wanders this cemetery is the Wandering Organist. And specifically, he actually travels between two cemeteries, or sorry, two locations, the cemetery itself and St. Vitus Cathedral. Is that the same St. Vitus Cathedral from the Dancing Plague of 1518? Hmm. Uh, the cathedral is actually where he used to play as an organist. And originally, he was said to have been a Christian who converted to Judaism right before his death, converted back to Christianity. And this means that his soul is actually tied to both locations. And so he travels between the two sites and has have been recorded as being seen as a skeletal fairy man, a grim reaper. At one point, if there's Rumor that it said you see him and he's accompanied by a black cat. It's supposed that the black cat might actually be the spirit of his wife. That's a new one. I hadn't heard that one before. And then the last we have here is the strangling Jewess, who apparently took a monk as a lover. This monk was a part of the St. Nicholas Monastery. And apparently she and her lover would meet at the monastery's crypt. However, unfortunately, they were both caught by the abbot of the monastery, and the monk was sent off to another monastery very, very far away, and she was said to have gone crazy and constantly go and hide in the crypt at St. Nicholas Monastery, would scream and cry for her lost lover. So at one point, the abbot decided he would try to go over there and calm her, but it, it didn't end well for him, unfortunately, and she apparently ended up strangling him. And it's said that her ghost continues to reside in this crypt where she will do harm to anyone who bothers her. So I recommend not going and bothering her. Extra tidbit here from Lauren is that the reason the old Jewish cemetery here in Prague still exists, particularly after World War II, when most of everything in the city was destroyed by Nazis, is because in Prague itself, Hitler had wanted to create a, quote, museum of an extinct race, God, that didn't happen gruesomely. This particular cemetery would have been a part of that museum. I can't thank God that didn't happen. Next on our list, we're going to stay in the Czech Republic, but we're going to drive about an hour outside of Prague to a city called Kuntna Hora. I hope I pronounced that correctly. To one of my absolute favorite places I have to go visit, and it's probably, I have to admit, my favorite place probably on this list. If you are really into bones and decoration and gothic decor,, oh, this place is for you because it's certainly for me. Oh my goodness, I love it. So this is the Church of Bones, Bone church, or Sedlock Ossuary, which is located in Kutenra. And from the outside, it looks like kind of an unassuming small Gothic medieval church, but inside. It houses an incredible, decorative, macabre fashion. The bones of over 40,000 bodies. That's right. 40,000 bodies. Multiply that by around 200 and something for every bone in the human body. That's a lot of bones. (laughs) So every single piece of decor in this ossuary is actually made from human bones there's a giant massive chandelier inside that is actually said to contain at least one of every human bone there are two large chalices and when i say large we're talking it from the pictures it looked like at least four feet tall and they're actually set in carved niches in the walls six bone pyramids that i think are probably around 10 to 12 feet tall maybe Skull candle holders, four Baroque candelabras, and even two bone monstrances, which I looked it up and it's supposedly something that holds the Eucharist. And there's even an entire coat of arms in in this ossuary made solely of human bones. And also throughout the church, you will find bones that are hung like decorative crepe paper from the ceiling of the bone garlands, essentially gorgeous in a very macabre fashion. And and don't think of it as more of a a disrespect for the bodies that were there, kind of like the Paris catacombs. It's all more of a very respectful life and death perspective, memento mori. I don't think that if they thought it was disrespectful, this wouldn't have happened. So you're probably wondering how all this got started, because I certainly was. So according to SedlockOssuary.com, in 1278, the king of Bohemia sent Henry, the head abbot of the Sedlock Cistercian Monastery, on a trip to Jerusalem. And when the abbot returned home, he had with him a jar of holy soil, which he said was dirt from Golgotha. And for those who didn't know, and I didn't, Golgotha is actually said to be the place where Jesus was crucified. So this makes it a very holy soil. Henry then scattered this dirt on the cemetery grounds. And because of this new and probably rare at the time, holy relic, many came from all around with requests to be buried near this very special monastery, which has now had an extra layer of holy added to it. And because of this, the monks decided they needed to expand their cemetery. So by the early 1400s, a Gothic style church was built near the cemetery, and the basement began to be used as an ossuary because the cemetery was now overcrowded with 30,000 dead wanting to be buried with this soil from Jerusalem. So the cemetery is overfilled. Now they're using the basement of the church as an ossuary, which over time also became overfilled and overcrowded. So eventually the Schwarzenberg family and the monks of the, the, the monastery, of the church asked a local woodcarver carpenter named Franzeseck Rindt the 1860s to task they tasked him with rearranging these boats and it took him a few years so by 1870 it was all finished I'm not sure if the Schwarzenberg family or the monks in particular had any plans on how they wanted the arrangement to look like but everything that you see decorative wise inside this ossuary is all the creation of Rint himself. Even the Schwarzenberg coat of arms that I mentioned earlier, which is all made of bones, if you look in the bottom right-hand quadrant, you'll see a raven pecking at a skull, which apparently is, I don't know if that's on the Schwarzenberg coat of arms, but it's supposed to signify the family overcoming Turks in battle or something like that. So there's a lot of very specific details. He even actually... And one stairwell in this place he actually even took bones and essentially made his own signature saying that i made this <laughs> in 1870 it's really cool rent was apparently also responsible for bleaching every single bone to ensure uniformity and i really hope he had help with that because again that's 40,000 dead and over 200 bones per human body. That's a lot of bones. Unfortunately, there really isn't a whole much a, a lot on the history of the church that I could find. Any particular people that were buried there or the part that I'm really curious about how Rent actually created these really magnificent macabre works of art. Although there isn't much written info, you just gotta look at the pictures. They really just speak for themselves and probably do better justice for this than I can. You absolutely gotta check these out. If, again, if you're really into Gothic decor and bones and just macabre decoration in general, oh, check it out because it's gorgeous. Yes. Gorgeous, gorgeous. I probably couldn't do it any justice more than just the pictures can. So now we are heading all the way across to Russia to a place literally called the City of the Dead. And this is located in Dargavs, Russia. And this is actually a place where the locals in the area would bury their family along with their clothes and belongings. So this City of the Dead actually stretches for about 10 miles and within it are over 100 crypts. And what's really interesting about this place is not knowing what it is, it looks like small Cottages of sorts or small thatched mountain valley housings. So you think it's more of a, a community of living people, but it's crypts to the dead. Interesting. So it's believed that there are more than 10,000 people buried here, with many of the crypts actually housing entire generations of families. And as I said, they look like they're made of thatched roofs but they're not. They're stone, and the roofs are actually curved up to a point, and some of the, the larger crypts actually have walls that curve inward as well, and they are made of stone, as I said, and likely to have been mortared with lime or clay, and within the buildings, you'll see small square windows or holes uh, in which you actually would put the bodies in, and for anyone who's interested in architecture, inside the, the these crypts depending on the size you'll either have groin bolts or barrel vaults in order to support the frames of these crypts some of the biggest crypts actually even measure between two to four stories high that's a lot of family members and it's believed that this necropolis actually dates back to the 1300s and the last known burial happened and around the end of the 1700s and over time as i said it grew to resemble a mountain village within this little valley and unassuming if you did not know it was a crypt or the city of the dead you would have thought it was just people's houses positioned on the highest point within the valley overlooking all these crypts is actually a watchtower which is said to watch over the dead and this is believed to belong to the mom's family and it's about 15 meters high which I think is roughly 48 feet tall, give or take. And there are several stories that are associated with this burial ground. And of course, you kind of gotta have some spooks. So one of them is, if you went looking for this place, you never return. Hmm. Another legend is that during the 1700s, when plague hit the area, because of course it did, in order to contain the outbreak, families of sick members would build little houses to quarantine the sick and they would then be provided with food, but nothing else. And unfortunately those sick with plague would not be allowed to leave their quarantine until they passed away. And those with no family would simply be quarantined and left there to die, possibly of starvation if you don't have anyone bringing you food located in front of these crypts are wells and it's actually believed that if you toss a coin into the well and it hits one of the stones then the family member that died there has passed on and is at peace and what's really interesting about these crypts aside from it's literally just a city of the dead a necropolis is that the bodies themselves are buried here in small structures resembling a wooden boat but you're in a mountain valley And there's really no large bodies of water near this area. So it's curious as to why a boat. And one theory is that the people there believe that the dead needed to cross a river in order to get to the afterlife. Uh, Not probably too too dissimilar to the river Styx. And on our next trip, we're going to stay in that side of the world, but go all the way down south to Japan. And I do apologize if I pronounce these wrong. We're going to Okanoyan Cemetery, and I apologize, my mouth wants to say Okonoinen, which is going to sound like Finnish, but this isn't Finnish, this is Japanese, so I apologize if that pops out. And we're going to the Wakayama Prefecture near Mount Koya, and Okanoyan is actually the largest cemetery in all of Japan. And the area of Mount Koya was actually settled in 816 AD and became the headquarters for the Shingon sect. Of Japanese Buddhism and over its very long history it has actually built well over 100 temples in this area and because it is massively important to the Buddhist segment of Japan it was actually named a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2004. So the temples and cemeteries in the area started with the monk who founded this Buddhist complex here Kobo Daishi and the cemetery and temples surrounding his grave So they're all built. He has a mausoleum and everything's built around the mausoleum. And there's a room in the mausoleum, which is lit by literally thousands of lanterns daily. So according to tradition in the area, these lanterns have actually been burning at at his mausoleum since his death over 1000 years ago. So it's said that throughout his teaching, Koba Daishi became very renowned and very respected by very many people, including members of the Japanese Imperial Court, And it is believed by the monks that still practice Buddhism in the area that Kobo Daishi is actually not dead, but that he is in a very deep meditative state. And he is continuing to pray in, for those who are in the cemetery, for the monks that live there, for the travelers, all the while waiting for the second coming of Buddha. Now, if you do approach the mausoleum of Kobo Daishi, One thing to absolutely remember is food, beverages, and especially photography is not allowed at all in the cemetery out of respect. And there are some off-limit places within the mausoleum, such as the resting place of Kobo Daishi. So apparently twice a day, high-ranking monks from the order will actually take meals to his resting place, but only very few are allowed to actually enter where his body resides. Although that place is off limits, the rest of the museum is open for tourists, and here you'll actually find a meditation room as well as the Hall of Lanterns. Now there are two main entrances into this two kilometer long cemetery, so it's very big. One of the major thoroughfares is the Ichinohashi Bridge, which is first bridge, and this path will lead you into the cemetery, as well as the the woods surrounding the cemetery, which you'll find even more tombstones. And at either entrance, first bridge or second bridge, it is expected that any visitors come in, they bow and they pay respect to Kobadaishi before crossing the threshold into the cemetery. So the site, however, is not known only for his tomb. There are over 20,000 graves here. Many of the graves are monks who wanted to be buried near Kobo Daishi, but you'll also find graves of well-known and respected leaders throughout Japanese history. You have a modern section now, which is dedicated to various corporations and businesses. It's also home to some unique and strange headstones too. Uh, if you are familiar with some, the history of Japanese uh, feudalism and feudal lords of Japan, two of the most famous are actually buried here. Odo Nubanaga and Toyotomi Hideyoshi and as you're walking around more so in the modern section of the cemetery you'll see tombs with giant spaceships and giant cups which sounds very unusual of course until you find out that the spaceship one is actually a dedication to former employees of an astronomical company and the cups one is for former employees of a coffee company You'll also find many graves of beloved pets in the area. And very interestingly enough, there is even a specific monument that is built by a pesticide company as a commemoration to all the insects that they've killed, which sounds rather very Buddhist to me in the first place. I like it. Two main paths into the cemetery will then lead you to Gokusho Offering Hall, which actually resides near a row of Jizo which is a type of Buddhist statue, which is said to watch over children, souls of the deceased and travelers. And here you can actually see many visitors make offerings at these statues by tossing water into, uh, um, onto them. You'll also see many of them wearing red aprons. And this is actually a practice done by parents who have unfortunately lost their children and are asking the Buddha to watch over them. So if you take the Gobyabashi bridge, which is set behind the Jizo statues, it will lead you to the inner grounds of the complex, leading you up to Daishi, Kobo Daishi's museum. And here again, you are asked to bow and pay respects to Kobodaishi Daishi before entering the inner sanctum. And again, no food, drink, or photography are allowed. And then once you make your way to the inner sanctum, you'll find the Torodo, which is the hall of lamps or the hall of lanterns and this is a main area for worship and when i said thousands of lamps we're talking tens thousand lanterns which ever since the sect began worshipers have actually donated lamps over time so it's grown to a very big size and again they have to be kept lit daily now in the basement of this hall of lamps you can actually find 50,000 tiny little statues which were apparently donated to the cemetery in 1984, marking the 1150th anniversary of Kobodaishi's state of eternal meditation. And there really isn't, actually, I couldn't find any hauntings, paranormal experiences, or anything like that, particularly related to this museum, uh, this cemetery, because it's not really what it's built for. It's not just a grave or a cemetery where you just bury the dead. People go there as a meditative retreat if you will but because it's a buddhist cemetery it's 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 a bit different as well so you're going and you're paying respects it's very serene it's littered with cedar trees which i bet smell really nice and you can go during the day and take tours you can actually go there at night and the monks will give you tours but where a lot of people might walk through a cemetery whether during the day or at night and kind of get a very creepy feeling I've looked around and I've watched videos and no one has ever said that they feel uncomfortable at this cemetery. They feel very calm and relaxed. It's very peaceful. It's very Zen. I I don't think that there's probably any paranormal activity related to this specific cemetery. And next, we're going to go all the way across to South America and down to Lima, Peru, to the Cemetery Presbyterio Matias Maestro, or the Presbyterian Cemetery. And this has been in existence since May 31st, 1808, and is actually the oldest public cemetery in all of South America. And it was commissioned by Viceroy Fernando de Abasco, and was built between 1805 and 1808. And The cemetery was actually designed by a man named Matias Maestro. And he was, he actually emigrated from Spain to Peru in 1790. And when he came to Peru, he actually became a Catholic priest and began dedicating himself to, quote, renewing the churches and altarpieces with the latest fashion styles, which at the time was neoclassical. And he would eventually become the general director of Lima's Public Beneficence Society in 1826 and uh, died in 1835. It's here that you can find approximately 766 mausoleums and 92 monuments, all in neoclassical design. So the style of the crypts and tombs in relation to social status is somewhat apparent here at this cemetery. The largest and most decorated are, of course, of the very rich. And those with some money, but not the very rich, are buried in spaces called Los Niches, which are rectangular structures, more like smaller, I guess, mausoleums, but not a whole mausoleum. And the common folk in the area who do not have enough money to build stone structures for their families are buried in ossuaries. Uh, also, space is kind of premium, so that is something that a lot of people tend to do. One of the major areas of the cemetery is actually known as the Crypta de Eros, I'm oh, sorry, Crypta de los Heros and is the resting place of soldiers who fought in the war of the Pacific which ran from 1879 to 1883 within this crypt there are 234 niches as well as a sarcophagus for andres Avelino casares and in the center of the crypt are five ossuaries containing the remains of unknown soldiers so there are six main gates to this cemetery mm-hmm. and it's 50 acres 50 acres of land are home to more than 220,000 bodies. It's a very big cemetery. And because of its history and that it's still in use, it was actually declared a national historical monument in 1972. And they obviously have very many famous people from Lima's history buried here, lone Peruvian history. And of course, we have more hauntings. So one of the people that haunts the cemetery is a young boy named Ricardo Espiel, and he was apparently the son of President Manuel Prado's secretary, and he died in 1893. He was only six years old at the time. Shortly after he was laid to rest, it's said that the caretakers would begin hearing the sounds of mischievous child laughter. And strange things began occurring at night, such as items falling without being touched. And some say they even saw little Ricardo dressed in a nightshirt wandering the cemetery. This, of course, spooked people. And in an attempt to peace little Ricardo's spirit, it's believed that people began leaving offerings at his tomb. They would leave items such as food and flowers and even ask him to wash over the health of their own children. There's another grave in the cemetery known as the Pavilion of Suicides, and this is where several people are buried who are apparently connected with witchcraft and the supernatural, and one of the tombs is that of the, quote, bad witch, who was actually, her name was uh, Gregoria Camacho, and her grave apparently is special because it's the only one in the entire graveyard with a skull and crossbones marked on it. Interesting. Uh, it's also said that it's a place where people who wish to practice witchcraft today gather at the cemetery. I wonder what kind of witchcraft they're performing. There's so many different kinds. Others buried here at the Pavilion of Suicide include the haunting story of apparently a real-life Sweeney Todd. Uh, apparently he was known as the Asian barber and worked at compound Street and was known to murder his clients. But before he unfortunately could be captured by the police, he killed himself. And also, there's supposed to be a real-life Romeo and Juliet-esque story of two lovers buried here. It was uh, two young cousins who apparently fell hopelessly in love, but couldn't get the approval of their family. So they decided to make the decision to poison themselves and a murder-suicide pact. After their deaths, their families actually decided to inter them together here at the cemetery, so that at least they are resting in peace together. So those are our main. Six cemeteries for this episode. But as I said, I've got a seventh one I just had to add. I'd never heard of it, but when I saw pictures of it, I had to add it. So this would be the world's biggest cemetery. How did I not ever hear this before? I'm not really sure. And had you not told me it was a cemetery, I would have thought it was a very large city but it's just the world's largest cemetery. In the city of Najaf in Iraq, you will find the Islamic cemetery known as Wadi Usalam. salam And I've seen it also written as Wadi al-Salam. I don't know if there's a difference. Most of my sources said Usalam, So that's what I'm going to go with. And it actually translates to Valley of Peace. It is estimated that there are 5 million, million Bodies buried here. Just wow. Apparently, the area has been used as a cemetery for over a thousand years and covers over 1,500 acres in the desert. And apparently, this takes up roughly 30 to even 40% of the entire city of Najaf, which is actually reported to be one of the biggest cities in Iraq with up to a population of 600,000, next to a cemetery built with over five million bodies and even to this day many are still buried here because Najaf is actually considered to be a very holy site and it's actually even said that there are up to 500,000 burials a year in recent years added to this cemetery so the city of Najaf actually dates back to the 8th century where it was founded as a shrine to Ali ibn Abi Talib. And the Shia domination of Islam actually regards him as the first Imam and as a successor to Prophet Muhammad. Ali is actually said to have been Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law who ruled over the Islamic Caliphate from 656 to 661 and was also one of the first males to convert to Islam. And because Wadi al-Salam means Valley of Peace, Imam Ali actually believed that this was a part of heaven. So according to belief, it is said that Imam Ali actually feared that his grave would be desecrated by his enemies after his death and said he wanted to be buried in secret. It is very widely accepted today that he's actually buried at the Imam Ali Mosque in Najaf. And this mosque is actually considered to be the third holiest site in Islam for the Shias. So many of the tombs here are made of brick and plaster. They vary in height and styles as well. And there are ornate metal crypts with angled roofings, ornate towers, which as an homage for more elite occupants, there's even multi-room crypts with very large domes for more of the wealthy occupants. As the cemetery has grown, especially in more recent years, many tombs have actually had to move to underground vaults, which can only be accessed by ladders. Unfortunately, because above-ground space is at a premium those buried underground may not necessarily have above ground markers to denote where a loved one is laid to rest. That's rather sad. But you can find many, many people here throughout the history of Najaf. Aside from common folk, you can also find kings, princes, their companions, sultans, prophets, other imams, scientists, etc. Some of the burial rituals here that, uh, that are still performed have actually been passed down since the time of uh, the creation of the cemetery and here bodies will be washed and wrapped at the cemetery while funerary prayers are said inside the mosque the deceased is then carried around the mosque three times while Quran verses are recited although the land of Najaf is no stranger to conflict unfortunately during the last hundred years or so it has seen a major increase But because of this, the government has tried to preserve the burial grounds from being desecrated. So in 1966, the 64th General Endowment Act was passed as an attempt to stop violence taking place in and around the holy city of Najaf. And more laws were enacted in 1999 with the hope of increasing the protection uh, around the city. Unfortunately, despite these plans and the laws put in place, this hasn't stopped people from desecrating these tombs more so the people that are doing the fighting. So apparently some of the militia will go and hide behind the tombs and then from there ambush their enemies uh, and, and just a lot of fighting in the area. So it's not uncommon to see grates and pieces from the tombs and crypts lining the roads around the cemetery, which is really, really sad. However, because of its massive, longstanding, and ongoing use within Islam – Wadi Ussalam became a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2011. And in my source notes, there's actually a link to a brief 15-minute documentary on the cemetery itself. And it also talks about the people that work there, the undertakers and grave diggers. And it's a very informative, but very solemn documentary uh, about what it's like to actually work there at the cemetery, which I imagine would be rather quite difficult to do. And on that, that concludes our tour of World Cemeteries for today. Thanks for checking us out. I hope you enjoyed our very spooky episode. And if you liked it, please feel free to leave us a rate and review or stars on iTunes. It really helps people to find us. And if you want to get in touch with us and share any paranormal experiences, pictures of spooks, graveyards, cemeteries, you can contact us through our email which is History Explains all at gmail.com. You can hit us up on our Facebook and our Instagram, which is History Explains it all underscore podcast. Our posting platform now also allows us to post polls and questions to Spotify. So if you happen to listen to us from there, check our episode notes out in Spotify for any polls or questions that I've posted related to recent episodes. And we can actually have a discussion back and forth on there. I will also be covering our social media accounts until Lauren gets back, so please excuse some slight delays in posting because I'm technology challenged and I'm kind of new to social media in terms of consistently using it, so bear with me for the next couple of days and trying to figure everything out. (laughs) With that said, I guess I'll close it off for today. You stay spooky. And we'll see you all next week as we continue to trek through history to explain it all. Bye.